is Zip Rap on BFBS with Kate Chabot. Summit day in Brussels, David Cameron and the rest of the EU leaders are trying to find a way to make Russia pay for taking over Crimea. And the NATO Secretary-General has his say. President Putin's decisions to escalate the situation have consequences. More killings in Iraq. Will the same thing happen in Afghanistan? And HMS Echo joins the search for the missing plane. The German Chancellor Angela Merkel has said Russia will face escalating EU sanctions if it does not take steps to ease the crisis over Crimea. Mrs Merkel, speaking ahead of an EU summit in Brussels, said the current political situation also meant the G8 effectively no longer exists. Tensions remain high in Crimea after its leaders signed a deal with Moscow to split from Ukraine and join Russia. Well, I'm joined by Professor Michael Clark, Director of the Royal United Service Institute, as well as our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. Uh, let's first look back at this week's events. It all seemed relatively easy for Russia to take Crimea. Professor Clark, what did you make of how it all happened? It was an opportunist uh, move. Uh, once there'd been the revolution in uh, in Kiev, I think Putin saw his chance. Remember, he's had a, a fairly long-term um, aim to try to re-establish the old borders of the Soviet Union. He's made no secret about that, and he made no secret about it speaking to the Russian parliament a couple of days ago, and he said something like, in translation, he said, it seems incredible that the Soviet Union could have been dissolved, but unfortunately it was, and we must reverse that. And he sounded very like the Weimar politicians of the 1920s who mm. said, you know, we couldn't do anything about the settlement of 1919, but we don't like it. And he's made it very clear he will do what he can now to reverse the situation of 1991. What about, about the ease and the speed with which it happened? Well, that's always been a, 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 a physical possibility. It was clear what the people of Ukraine themselves thought, and he, he wiped away all of the legal issues. I mean, it was not negotiated. The, peop the, the Russian forces who were we not wearing insignia were behaving totally illegally remember because if you're not wearing military uniform and you do what they did then you're either terrorists or pirates or criminals uh, you know there's no other alternatives um, so and all of that illegality seems to have been slightly lost in the outrage that the west feels so physically it's very easy politically of course the game only now just begins christopher i imagine the kind of the, the, the careless banter in pubs about this might be is this world war three starting i mean how serious is this are we talking about a crisis right now um, no World War Three. that's the first thing. Um, when uh, Chancellor Merkel says that Russia has to do something to reduce the crisis, Russia has done something to reduce the crisis. Russia has taken Crimea. And the real crisis was Crimea. And what might happen as a result of him saying that's what we're going to do? Or, you, you sound like you're saying I'm that saying they did there the is right no thing. crisis. Right. Now, there was. What I'm saying is now we have a huge problem, mm. and it's a problem that can be uh, resolved, but not like at an EU meeting. Um, the United, uh, European Union is going to have to start rethinking this whole, uh, the whole reorganisation of uh, and relations with with Russia. And when when they, uh, the Prime Minister uh, David Cameron says, "Well, we may have to exclude Russia from the G8 permanently." You have to remember that the G8 is one of the few places where you actually do supposedly get on with Russia, where you can talk. Realpolitik 
is the fact that we keep saying this, you never talk to your chums. You have to do business with the enemies. And I think this is... You know, the whole thing now is, is a problem of how Washington, London in particular, uh, Poland and Germany maybe, how they sort of resolve the problem. The crisis, I think, the crisis is in fact over. The crisis was over when, when uh, the Russians went in and took, and they would say took back, uh, the Crimea. Professor Clark, at EUR meeting today, can anything be achieved there? They can make the sanctions a little bit stronger, but uh, Malcolm Rifkin in Parliament a couple of days ago said that the West response so far has been pathetic. And what do, you, what do you think of it? I think he's absolutely right. It is pathetic. Um, the fact is, we're, we're talking about there will be consequences. Rasmussen says consequences, Obama says consequences, even actually Mr Putin said if the West reacts there will be consequences. Everyone's talking about unspecified consequences. At, at the moment, I mean, Russia is going to isolate itself and it's in, it's in a strategic cul-de-sac doing this. On the other hand, it's not going to stop it doing it. And so so the isolation of Russia, which will cost us something economically, um, ought to be made a bit more obvious, because otherwise the Russians at the moment are very cock-a-hoop about this. Not just the government, but the Russian population think this is very popular. Russian emigre populations that I've spoken to uh, in the UK are very keen on this. They actually like what's happened, most of it. So, Professor Clark, what, what will happen next? Or, or should we be saying where will something happen yeah, next? The, well, if I had to put money on it, the, ne the next issue will be Moldova, the Transnistria district of Moldova. The Transnistria who are again a Russian enclave in a, in a separate country, which is very Romanian, as Moldova is right next to Romania. Uh, and the, the Transnistrians have already asked the Kremlin, can they do the same as Crimea? And the Kremlin are backpedaling a bit because they want to give themselves time. But the next crisis, I'm sure, will be a rerun of something similar to Crimea, mm. probably in Transnistria. Christopher? Um, yeah, back last November, we were seeing exactly as we've got here without the takeover. Of, of the Crimea. And um, we were talking about it at great length on this programme of how the Russians will, will try and screw uh, the Ukrainians, uh, how the uh, EU won't be able to do anything about it, and how, having done U the Ukraine, they then go somewhere else, Moldova. Mm. And we should go back to the original crisis, if we call them that, in Europe. And that was when the Russians did for Georgia, Izvestia, uh, etc. They hasn't come out the way they wanted it and that is the fear i think that putin has but also russia has remember this has now gone past a, a, a crisis about putin it is now a crisis about the rest of the world and russia all right let's talk a little bit more about the politics because nato secretary general anyas Rasmussen has warned russia's aggression in ukraine was the gravest threat to european security and stability since the cold war he was speaking in washington president putin's decisions to escalate the situation have consequences. As a first step, we have suspended joint planning for a maritime escort mission for the destruction of serious chemical weapons. This would have been the first joint operation of the NATO-Russia Council. Andy said it's a reminder to European governments about defence spending. The Ukraine crisis and what we have seen in Crimea has been a wake-up call and it must be followed by increased European investments in defence, if we are to ensure a credible deterrence and collective defence uh, in, in the future. 
Professor Clark, that the Ukraine crisis, a tricky one for NATO, that in theory has only a minor role in the Western response. Well, NATO, it's important that NATO now reassures its Eastern members who are very, very worried about this. So Poland in particular, um, the Baltic states, they feel very vulnerable. And I think, that, you know, the thing is, that's always said in NATO is that the Russians do respect red lines, but they don't respect them when you tell them what they are. You have to just demonstrate what the red lines are. Mm. And I, so I think there's a big reassurance mission for NATO. And I think in general, NATO and the EU have got to reassure, but the market will punish Russia. It's already beginning to. I mean, a lot of Russian money is now coming out of the West back home because the investors fear that it'll be frozen if it stays in the West. And a lot of Western money is now coming out of Russia. So both in and out, Russia is being isolated by the financial markets and the, the flow of investment uh, will actually diminish. Okay. So, the, you know, the market will punish Russia in the longer run, but not in the short run. And Christopher, what do you make of NATO's response so far? How should it be dealing with this? You've got to remember that NATO is not a military force. It's got a military aspect, but it's not a military force. It's primarily political. Now, NATO, for example, hasn't got any troops that it could send on en- onto anybody's border. Those troops come from the member nations, and the member nations are the bo- take a political decision to do this. When we do talk about the European Union, you've got to remember a lot of the members of the European Union are also members of NATO, and this demonstrates it's a political thing. So it's not a sort of crisis point for NATO. Can NATO do anything? Has it got a role in life, etc.? Where you get into tricky things is, for example, how you control the Ukraine, the new government in the Ukraine, keep the lid on them in some ways. Now, they're talking at the moment about going to have a joint exercise with the United Kingdom, the United States, and perhaps with France. France yeah. as well. Although, uh, and, the, and the British, British are saying, Wait. They're saying that, that, that hadn't been yeah. agreed at all. But they can say, we will have to have this thing under, under a previous agreement with the United Kingdom in particular. Mm. Now, the United Kingdom is not going to do that. Can you imagine sending, oh, we'll have a naval exercise, <laughs> we'll do it in the Black Sea, just off Sevastopol. And, and then Crash McCarr would have heard that on the radio yeah. last so, night. I mean, so the important thing is to remember, NATO is not just a military organisation, doesn't have any troops, has a certain amount of assets. Mm. Um, all the people that might do a military thing are either America, Canada, and also members of the EU. And nobody, but nobody, is going to sort of go along with the Poles except say, well, look, we'll base a couple of aircraft in your territory, mm. we'll do some flyovers, etc., but we're not going to go to war on this. And they don't expect to. Russia gives an impression, just an impression, in the last 48 hours of saying, OK, for the moment, we've gone far enough. Listen to what Lavrov says. He's the speakman on this. All right, gentlemen, stay with us. The Chancellor, George Osborne, gave his budget speech yesterday. This wasn't the time for a big deal on defence spending. But when the Treasury does the sums, the Defence Secretary always looks a little nervous. James Hurst was listening. The Chancellor of the Exchequer, the Right Honourable George Osborne. As the Chancellor got to his feet, he seemed to have something of a smile, perhaps because he also had some good numbers on the economy. I can report today that the economy is continuing to recover and recovering faster than forecast. It wasn't long, though, before there was a but. The job is far from done. Our country still borrows too much. And so the Chancellor turned a billion pounds of underspending across government into a permanent cut. The impact on defence should be minimal. The MOD has been given special flexibility to underspend one year and rollover savings to another. So its £159 billion 10-year equipment plan is unaffected. It is secure, but only for now. So I can confirm that in addition to the cuts this year and next, there will be cuts in the next Parliament too. Of course, there's no guarantee George Osborne will be Chancellor in the next Parliament. But the man who wants to replace him, Ed Balls, hasn't promised to do anything particularly different 
on cutting public spending. He's not balanced the budget in 2015. The deficit is there till 2019. National debt is still rising this Parliament and next Parliament. Whoever the next Chancellor is, they won't just have to deal with financial pressure when it comes to defence. He mentioned 20,000 Russian troops in the Crimea. Whilst no-one is advocating military intervention, does it not remind us that perhaps we should be fundamentally reassessing how much we spend on our armed forces. That was Conservative MP John Barron in the House of Commons this week. And the Chief of Defence Staff has already issued a very public warning that more cuts to defence spending would risk a hollowed-out force with great equipment, but not enough people to actually use it properly. James Hurst reporting. Uh, Professor Clark, um, the Defence Secretary, how how nervous would he have been yesterday? Because not a lot was said in defence, was it? present trajectory is still not very good for defence because after 2016 the trajectory is that defence will probably in real terms lose maybe 1% to 2% every year from 2016 to 2020 because remember that the um, other departments are ring fenced and defence is not ring fenced so whereas the the Chancellor has said we will not cut these departments for electoral reasons he says that and that's that's understandable defence is not among those privileged departments and so when you look at the hope the overall package plus the commitments that have already been made spending as the, as he said he will one percent more on defense equipment that's equivalent to about 0.4 of a percent across the defense budget as a whole the whole defense budget in our view i mean we've researched this pretty thoroughly after 2016 is going to reduce by about between one and two percent a year on present trajectory. Now, that may change if the economy really picks up, if the Ukrainian crisis gets much worse, etc., etc. But as things presently stand, defence will suffer. Christopher, what did you make of what was said yesterday? I like the idea that, the, you know, that George Osborne went to the House with a smile on his face. Well, Philip Hammond, the Defence Secretary, say, would, would probably say, beware the smile on the face of the tiger, mm. because he knows that, um, as, as Mike is saying, that, you know, you could have a 1%, one, one, to 2% reduction, and then where does that put you in the whole idea of your outer defence budget? I mean, when you get to the bit beyond 2020, and if you think in defence and defence spending and defence building, you have to think much further out. Where Aren't we coming back, really, in terms of money, is what the public thinks. Now, yesterday, George Osborne said what the public really thinks is about uh, savings, it thinks about uh, a, a higher yeah, tax uh, relief, uh, etc. Yeah, and I suppose playing into that, money money was announced from the LIBOR funds for military charities, so, so that sounds nice, doesn't that it, That really? sounds really, really nice, isn't it? But if you go back, let's say, to October last year, and, and we heard uh, from the NATO Secretary-General just now, but what he was saying in Croatia, I think it was, uh, Mike, in last October, yeah. he was saying that, you know, defence ministers, governments don't go round to their countries and uh, their population and say, this is why we've got to have defence, therefore don't cut back on defence. There's only one other smile on the face of Philip Hammond at the moment with the whole Ukraine crisis. People look at the threats, the so-called threats, and how dangerous uh, Putin and his lot might be, and they forget their objections to Trident renewal. Gentlemen, stay with us. Sit rep. Still to come, the Forces Pension Society complains about MOD censorship after its advert was pulled. And HMS Echo joins the search for the missing Malaysian Airlines flight. This is BFBS 
There are elections in Iraq at the end of next month. Uh, Professor Michael Clark, he's still with us. I gather you were in Baghdad last week, still a dangerous place, where oh. the killing rate's even higher than it was last year. Yes, there's almost a 1,000 people a month being killed in Iraq. I mean, mainly in Anbar province, but I have to say that, that Baghdad was very, very nervous. I mean, really? every 400 metres, there, uh, there was a roadblock, there were, there were HESCO bags everywhere, Sangas everywhere, and uh, the, Afghan, the um, uh, Iraqi security forces were very nervy. Maliki was speaking at the, at the meeting I was at, and there was there was real security around him. He's going to win the elections, almost certainly. There's no real question about that. Mm. Um, and after the elections, things may change a little bit. But In what Iraq, way? Well, Iraq's very nervous. I mean, I think Maliki may feel a bit more confident, and at the moment there's a discussion as to whether Iraq will really stay together as a country, whether whether the Kurds will, will leave. Now, mm. some people say, no, they won't leave because they're doing very well as they are and leaving will be more difficult. I speak to other Kurdish uh, interp interpreters and uh, people who are, who are the Kurdish community in Britain and they say, well, um, actually if Turkey would live with it, we would leave. And I think in, the, in a way Kurdistan is a bit like or the Kurdish area of uh, Iraq is a bit like um, Slovenia was in Yugoslavia. Um, Slovenia was the most developed part of Yugoslavia and the, the, fe the feeling they had is if this country is going to go to the dogs, we will mm. go now on our own terms. And the Kurdish part of Iraq, northern Iraq, might do the same. So what were you doing there? It was a meeting, it was a, a counter-terrorism meeting, it was an international counter-terrorism meeting, and uh, Maliki wanted to place himself at the centre of global counter-terrorist efforts. Really? And he got deputy foreign ministers around, he, he wanted Ban Ki-moon, but Ban Ki-moon eventually pulled out at the last minute and sent mm. a deputy. Um, so he got, it, he, he got it at the level of, of, of um, deputy foreign ministers, which is quite good going, it was quite well represented, uh, the Chinese were there, the Americans were there, the French. Uh, it was a big meeting in Saddam's old palace. Uh, and then a series of breakout meetings uh, as part of that. And did it come up with any concrete ideas? It came up with lots of ideas, none of which uh, are new, but partly it was to give, uh, it was to give him visibility uh, in, within his electorate, but also, I think, to try to concentrate uh, minds about, on Middle East security on the challenge of Iraq. Everyone's focused on Syria at the moment, but actually the question now is whether Iraq will survive the Syria crisis. Of course, the combat mission's ending in Afghanistan at the end of this year. Mm. Um, any lessons? to be drawn from Iraq? Uh, oh, many, I think. In status of forces agreement, I mean, the, there are no foreign forces in Iraq now because they couldn't conclude any status of forces agreement, which has left Iraq in a, in a worse situation now. Lots of private contractors are there. So a, a SOFA is really important because there has to be a gradual tailing down rather than a, rather than a, a, a finish. And, of course, the two situations are different. Um, I mean, Iraq, I, I still have some optimism for Iraq, and, and we just don't know about Afghanistan. What kind of optimism do you have? I have an optimism that Iraq is still, there's still vibrant within the economy. It's a violent place, but that doesn't mean to say it's uneconomic. Uh, and certainly in the south, in Basra, you can see there's a sort of pull of commerce now, but it's not politically very pretty. Mm. It does involve a lot of criminality and a lot of violence. It doesn't stop people li living their lives. One of the difficulties, we, I mean, in about five weeks' time, we're heading for elections in, in Iraq. One of the difficulties is that Prime Minister Maliki get, has the reputation at the moment of playing revenge politics. And if you want... Perhaps we should emphasise the reason there are lots of killings going on in, on in Iraq at the moment. It's not political. It is Sunni versus Shia, and Shia versus Sunni, and, 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 and that is part of the whole revenge process. And so if that splits Iraq into three groups, uh, then the, it won't necessarily stop a commercial uh, revival, but what it will do, it will stop a lot of people actually going there and saying, look, we can help mm. out with the building. But don't forget the thing about Iraq. What's the big thing about Iraq? Oil. 
Mm. And where's the oil? Ask well, the Kurds. They've well, got it. All right, Christopher, thank you. Stay, stay with us. Professor Michael Clark, I know you've got to go. Thank you for your time today, Professor Michael Clark from Rusi. The Ministry of Defence has been accused of censoring an advertisement that highlights the plight of military widows who lose their pensions when they remarry. The advert was due to run in Soldier magazine, as well as Navy News and RAF News publications, all funded by the MOD. It was produced by the Forces Pension Society, which is campaigning for a better deal for service widows. Our reporter, Rosie Layton spoke to the organisation's General Secretary, Major General John Morbick, and asked him why the advert couldn't be published. We were told that the advert was too aggressive. It's part of a series of adverts we've been doing to make people aware of the Justice for Widows campaign that we're running to make sure that um, service widows in the future are treated with equality. Uh, we've run that advert in, in many other journals. We've run it in the political journals in Whitehall, and nobody seemed to object then, but it was suddenly rejected by Soldier magazine on advice from, or on this instruction from higher levels. You do use quite strong language in the ad, and it refers to a case study where a widow alleges she was woken up by MOD police and, and held in police cells. Uh, do you think that's justified? That is perfectly justified. It is, uh, we don't condone that at all. That is benefit fraud if proven. Of course, that case hasn't come to court. But there have been similar cases in the past. And cohabiting or remarrying uh, when you're not entitled to and receiving an armed forces pension is benefit fraud. But, of course, what makes a criminal out of a service widow is not her innate, innate character. It is the rules that surround her. The government say this policy is the same across the public sector. Why do you think service widows are being discriminated against? Why do you think this is a covenant issue? The covenant exists to ensure there's no disadvantage. Whether you're in the Army, Navy, Air Force or Royal Marines, your life is one of turbulence. Whether you move 5, 10, 15 or 20 times in your husband's career, you certainly won't be able to have an employment record that will qualify you for a state pension. You're not going to have the money to buy a private pension and you're not going to have the continuity of employment to build up an occupational pension should you be fortunate enough to be a teacher or a nurse or another person in the, uh, in the public sector. And what kind of number of people does this policy affect? So these rules will affect those who are married now, many of those who are serving now. Over half of the current serving armed forces are on the 1975 scheme, which means that well over half of those who are married will be affected by these rules, and that's of people who are currently serving. Because the word widow is used, people tend to think of older ladies, think of the past, and think of this as a legacy issue. It's not. It's an issue that goes forward for the next 40 years. And how important is it for your campaign that these ads should run in service publications like Soldier and RF News and so on? Because we need to make sure that those who are currently serving realise that these rules will apply to them to a large degree. Now, an early day motion has been put down by Katie Clark, MP for, for Ayrshire and Arran, and she's put down early day motion 1,157 on this issue. And we are asking people in the wider armed forces community to write to their members of parliament and asking them to sign that early day motion. And that's the purpose of our advertising, making people aware of the issue.
Major General John Morbick from the Forces Pension Society talking there to our reporter Rosie Layden. Well, in a statement, the Ministry of Defence said, whilst contrary views are always welcome, it would be absurd to include advertising that directly criticises clear, long-standing government policy and the advert would have created unnecessary confusion amongst soldiers and their families. Uh, Christopher, would it have been absurd? Um, I actually haven't seen the actual advertisement. Mm. But I suspect, just listening in the content, no, it wouldn't be absurd. I mean, soldiers and their families are not going to get confused by this. They have their own views already. So you think it's censorship, do you? Or? I th- well, I think it's an instinct. Mm. There, are t- there, there are two particular uh, departments in, in Whitehall. One is the MOD, in fact, the other one is the old Department of Agriculture, who have this sort of difficulty in saying, let's be open about things. I mean, national security and, and things like this. I think the Defence Ministry has not learned a thing since 1982 when it tried to revive and then revise all its policies on, on, on public relations and advertisements, etc. And I'm afraid it's not going to do so. A Royal Navy survey ship has been sent to help with the search for the Malaysia Airlines plane after debris was sighted off the coast of Australia. HMS Echo is in the area where two large objects have been spotted on satellite pictures. Professor Eric Grove is on the line from Liverpool Hope University. Hello, Professor. Hello, hi. How are you? Oh, no, uh, all right, thank you. What's, what's Australia's capability for this kind of thing? Well, she has maritime patrol aircraft, which is more than we have. In fact, one of the things I've been reflecting on is the fact that the Australians have got maritime patrol aircraft. The Americans have, the New Zealanders have, they're all engaged in this, and we couldn't do it even if we had aircraft in the area because we don't have any maritime patrol aircraft at all. So it, d- it does demonstrate that's something of a gap in our own capability. Ah, uh, but we do have HMS Echo. Yes, and she's a very capable ship indeed. She has an integrated survey system with various kinds of sonars. She can see wrecks certainly in shallow waters, and she'd certainly be, I think, a tremendous asset if, the, if this was the wreckage of the aircraft in trying to f- find the black box, the black boxes, among other things, so-called, although I think they're orange. Um, and, and so she, she would be a great asset. It's lucky that she was in the area. But she, but she goes on these very long-range global operations. In fact, she has a three-watch system where the, comp- the, the ship's company is divided into three and two-thirds man the ship at any one time and the others have a sort of a, a month's leave as the ship can, can spend months, indeed years, away. She actually did a, a five-year mission earlier. And so she happened to be in the area. She, she was in Oman and now she's sailing at her best speed, which is probably you know, 12, 12 to 15 knots towards mm-hmm. the area. And when she arrives, she will be a very... A very very good asset indeed. Christopher. i tell you something, Eric. You know, you were saying that she's really good at shallow water. It's 10,000 feet. I know it is. I know it mm. is. And I'm not sure if she, if she has an ROV, but she does she have hasn't. one of the most sophisticated... An ROV, sorry, for, uh, for a people... A remotely operated vehicle. Thank you. But she does have an... In, but, but her integrated survey system is pretty much state-of-the-art. So uh, if any ship can, in fact, uh, sense the underwater environment, uh, no, she can. So, yeah. so altogether, all how will this be being conducted, very briefly, Eric? Well, I mean, they, they, they've had great difficulty to see if the wreckage actually exists or not. The Australians sent out one of their P3s, but it was very cloudy and the weather was bad. Um, so uh, it, it's hoped, I think, that uh, other aircraft, after the New Zealanders are sending out something, might be able to see something, and then various assets will be zeroed in. In fact, there is, I think, already a Norwegian car-carrying ship in the area. Uh, it went into the area. So uh, one, one really encouraging thing about this is how all the countries come together in the search and rescue role, and it's, a, it's, a, it's the bottom line of 
of naval cooperation. And, and that really is the one encouraging thing one can take away from something which looks like being a tragedy. All right, Professor Eric Grove from Liverpool Hope University, thanks for joining us. Always makes me happy to talk to you. Thank you. just how happy the UN Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon will be after his meeting with President Putin today. Let's hope he is, because, after all, it is the UN's designated International Day of Happiness. Uh, Christopher, feeling happy yourself? I'm feeling very happy, but not what's going on. I'll tell you something, though. Uh, first time I joined a ship, mm. it was Ship Smile Day. Oh, really? Yeah, and the Jimmy, the, the, the first lieutenant, gave me the Met and said, take that up to the captain, be very careful, he doesn't like snotties. That's the sort of uh, the midshipman <laughs> sort of character, right? So I went up and I came back and the, uh, and the Jimmy said to me, well, well, all right, was it? And I said, well, sir, the captain's very, very good, sir. He smiled at me. Mm. He just smiled at you? He said, I laughed me flaming head off when I first saw you. <laughs> so I have a sort of feeling that it goes back a few years. This, this idea of International Day of Happiness, the UN came up with this idea um, so that the world might recognise happiness and health as fundamental human rights. Does this kind of day make any difference, really? Yeah, I mean, how many people in Aleppo, Homs, Kabul, uh, Somalia, uh, let's say Central African Republic, mm. are going to be signing up for UN Happy Day? Mm. No, I think it's a time when, if it's, if it's not just let's all be happy, it's a time when people say let's figure out what's not happy. Mm. Christopher, looking ahead to next week, um, what will be on the news agenda, do you think, for us, very briefly? Oh, mostly it's the, it's the big... Uh, it's the big meeting in The Hague when President Obama is going to be there. And these will be the final and the red line words about Ukraine. All right, that's all we have time for this week. My thanks to all of our guests. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter. You can tweet us at BFBS SITREP. Remember, you can listen again on our website, bfbs.com slash SITREP. We're back at the same time next week, but from me, Kate Chabot, thanks for listening. Bye-bye for now. Sports, sports and music, music for the British forces. This is BFB.